Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Physical Attraction is a podcast about physics, science, and technology. We are time travelers, jumping from the distant past to the distant future. From the life of Isaac Newton to the ways the world might end. And from the lives of quarks to the life cycle of neutron stars. No subject is too big or too small. We interview scientists, authors, activists, and historians, and there's been a special focus on Russia-related issues. We interviewed the author of Stalin and the Scientist, Simon Ings, about science in the Soviet Union, and had several episodes about the atomic bomb. Subscribe to Physical Attraction on iTunes, or visit the website at www.physicspodcast.com. Additionally, Physical Attraction has a sister podcast, Autocracy Now, about historical dictators, which is currently in an epic series on the life of Stalin. You can find that show at www.autocracynow.libsyn.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. This week's episode is going to be one of those specials where I revisit things that I've done in the past. Specifically, one certain period of time, which I touched upon in the Lenin series, which was the Soviet Civil War. You see, I recently watched a movie from 1987 called Walker. It was about William Walker and how that crazy guy managed to become the president of Nicaragua for two whole years. That's one of those so-bad-it's-good movies, I'd state, because it tries to be artistic, and as at that time the Iran-Contra thing was going on, yeah, they try to show how Nicaragua and Central America will never be left alone, and attempts to be an artsy political criticism. However, it fails on that aspect, and that's the only movie that I know of where the soundtrack can completely ruin the mood for everyone, 
but it's just amazing in every possible way while being utterly bad. It's like the room of, you know, 19th century military-ish movies. But yeah, that's not the point here. The point is that this movie inspired me to look at the American small wars. Now, what's a small war, you ask? Well, those are tiny little expeditions upon which I'll touch in the future as well. For example, did you know that even before World War One, the American soldiers fought German soldiers and, you know, engaged in firefights in Samoa? This episode is also going to be one of those things, because we all know about the big tragedies. We all know about the crazy stuff that has happened and is publicized everywhere, but there are many smaller yet very humane stories which are really touching, and they just don't get the attention that they need now and then. You see, President Ronald Reagan said in 1984, quote, To the people of the Soviet Union, it's true that our governments have had serious differences, but our sons and daughters have never fought each other in war, and if we Americans have our way, they never will. The problem is, Mr. Reagan here was wrong. Reagan had ignored the history of, well, one of the nicest ways how to call it is the polar bear mission, or the North Russian invasion, or the North Russian intervention. Where, yes, indeed, United States soldiers fought and died on the battlefields in North Russia against the Bolsheviks, Soviets specifically, between the years of 1918 and 1919. See, a small army of about 5,000 United States soldiers landed in the ports of Arkhangelsk, or Archangel, but I just prefer the original Arkhangelsk, and Murmansk in fall of 1918. And this will be the story about their campaign and what they did there, together with the British and the French, the Allies. And this is one of the least known things in history in general, because, well, I tried to find some sort of a poll where this would be described, how much people knew about this. And uh, the most recent poll that I could find was made in 1985. It was a New York Times poll. And it revealed that only 14% of Americans knew that troops had landed in Russia. And if that was the most recent poll, and even then only 14% of Americans knew about this, then, then yeah, welcome to the Eastern Border. It's kind of my job to tell you about these things, because they're really interesting. Of course, we'll be talking about Woodrow Wilson, and the reasons why, and how everything happened, but I do want to start by actually reading you a book. No, I'm serious, a whole book with my commentary, obviously, and skipping just over some minor parts in there, because the book's very short. It's called Fighting Without a War. It's available for free on Gutenberg.org. It's public domain. It was written by Ralph Albertson, and it is an account of military intervention in North Russia. Because I can delve into the secondary sources, and I will, but you know me, you know this podcast. I like primary sources the most. I like the things that people actually saw. This book was printed in 1920, and it's dedicated to the American, British, and Canadian men who laid down their lives in North Russia. The author of this book, Ralph Anderson, he went to the North Russia as a YMCA secretary who was assigned to work with the army, and apparently he had landed in Murmansk just before Thanksgiving, and that was in 1918, and he reached Arkhangelsk on the 1st of December, and then he was instantly sent to Shekursk and Uspantega, which were the southernmost points of the expedition. Anderson was in charge of the YMCA work for the Vaga column until June, when he went to Yemetskoy and later to Arkhangelsk with the departing American troops. And, apparently, as he will say later in the book, the British YMCA was not prepared to take over all the work at that time, so several Americans remained with the British and Russian armies. And he was one of these people. 
He returned south to Bereznik later on. He was made responsible for the evacuation of the entire Allied YMCA personnel, supplies, and equipment. So literally, Ralph Albertson was the last American to leave. He returned to Archangelsk in late August, and as he states, he sailed with the last of the embassies, consulates, military missions, etc. on September the 2nd. In his preface of the book, he states that the various censorships imposed by the American and British governments have prevented the publication of so much important and significant news of this expedition that no number of books that may be published now would cover the whole story. Most of it, moreover, has ceased to be news. However, these censorships accompanied by the official propaganda have left the country in the stage of gross misinformation regarding the expedition. Mistakes were made. Abuses suffered. Heroism was performed and tragedies enacted, which is the right of the American and British people to know about. Yeah, he'll criticize a lot of things, but he's worthwhile, as this is a primary source, and like I said, the book's not that long. Interesting thing, however, before we begin with this book, and later on with the analysis of this primary source, and looking at what the secondary ones state, is that, and again, I quote Albertson here, <clears throat> While I have been compelled to criticize the attitude and actions of British officers as a class in order to tell the truth of what happened in North Russia, I should regret to have my words taken as applying equally to all of them. I wish also to say that some, who fail most squarely under the criticisms of this book, were among my warmest friends, and I cherish for them a genuine personal regard. To certain British and Canadian officers, I undoubtedly owe my life, and they gave me, especially the Canadians, the utmost cooperation and courtesy throughout the entire campaign. And he finishes the preface by stating, <clears throat> As to the Yanks, God bless them. It wasn't their show. So, let's find out what this whole show was from the beginning. The events that led up to the United States intervention in Russia started after the U.S. entered World War I. Shortly after the United States joined the war effort, Russia withdrew its forces because of the revolution and the civil war, where Bolsheviks eventually won, but it was a crazy mess, as you might have heard from my civil war episodes in the Lenin series. Well, at one point, they signed the peace treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which gave Germany much land and raw resources, and, well, we got our independence at some point in the future, too, here in Latvia. But yeah, with German reinforcements now able to transfer from the Eastern Front to the Western Front, the Allies became concerned about their Western Front positions. Britain and France concluded, under these new conditions, that the Allies must establish an Eastern Front through a military intervention in Russia, and in June, the Supreme War Council recommended sending an allied joint force to Murmansk and Arkhangel, Russia, or Arkhangelsk. Uh, most of my secondary sources here are English, and the Russian ones obviously say Arkhangelsk, so, you know, they are interchangeable, essentially. The Allied commanders concluded that the ice-free ports of Murmansk and Arkhangelsk held great strategic importance because of their location near the railroad system, which connected these cities to, at that time, Petrograd. Because, yeah, they believed that the position of these ports would enable Allied forces to reopen the Eastern Front. While Britain and France readily asserted the necessity of an Allied intervention in Russia, our good old friend Mr. Wilson, President of the United States, argued that the states should not interfere in Russia. Well, sort of. This is one of the views here, and technically, it has been claimed that, quote, he proclaimed in his 14-point speech that all foreign governments should allow Russia an opportunity for the independent determination of their own political development and national policy. However, shortly thereafter, Wilson further expressed his opposition to military intervention in Russia, but he still approved of the situation. He stated that... <clears throat> The establishment of an Eastern Front would be merely a method of making use of Russia, not a method of serving her. 
Technically, traditionally, it is believed that Mr. Wilson believed that the Allies should allow a democratic Russian government to form. That is why it is quite paradoxical that although Wilson opposed American intervention in Russia, he later did order an American expeditionary force on the frontiers of Russia where they would, well, engage the Soviets. And the traditional story goes from Wilson's own writing and from Fogel's songs, America's Secret War Against Bolshevism, that um, Wilson technically, traditionally, is thought to have intended to allow the Russian people to decide their own political futures. However, this is one of these good czar, bad boyars cases, except in the States, <clears throat> quote, his advisors persuaded him that the Germans had installed the Soviets into power and that the United States should in turn send an experimental probe of United States soldiers to Russia to spark a Russian uprising against the Soviets. In the end, this experimental probe proved to be unsuccessful because he gave British commanders control over the United States troops, as we will see in the book, but this is necessary to understand it. He refused to send reinforcements to North Russia, he refused to define the goals of the expeditionary force, which literally crippled the morale. And obviously, many scholars have looked into the apparent hypocrisy of Wilson's 14 points address in light of his actions in North Russia, but the questions as of why Wilson ultimately ordered the intervention hasn't answered. George Keenan, and I quite much like the guy, in his 1958 piece Decision to Intervene, claimed that Wilson never really understood the events that took place in Russia. Moreover, Betty Unterberger, in her work Woodrow Wilson and the Bolsheviks, the Acid Test of Soviet-American Relations, argues that Wilson had no idea that American troops actually engaged Bolshevik forces, and that he only agreed to send troops in North Russia as a way to appease coalition diplomacy. But this also comes under scrutiny when um, revisionists, like, for example, William Appleman, who wrote in his American Intervention in Russia 1917-1920, that anti-Bolshevik sentiment drove Wilson's decision for a military intervention. And if you listen to Dan Carlin's episode about the first Red Fear, sort of makes sense. George Shield also adds support to this argument when he states that Wilsonian policy, quote, alternated between ideological preconceptions and considerations of realpolitik. And then there's David Fogel's song from this America's Secret War Against Bolshevism that literally Wilson's Puritan upbringing gave him a natural disdain for Bolsheviks. Fogel's song asserts that a Wilsonian style of intervention used clandestine measures in an attempt to cripple the Bolshevik government, well, which in the end failed. A lot of these scholars claim that this Wilsonian style of intervention stems from Wilson's experience with intervention in the Mexican Revolutionary War, where he waged a lot of warfare against Mexico, both military and economic. And a lot of scholars that I've read for this episode do conclude that Kennan's groundwork about intervention was important. However, the revisionists, again, here, conclude that Wilson did, in fact, create a policy intervention of North Russia, which is by now the accepted stance, because at some point, criticizing Woodrow Wilson must have been quite unpopular in the United States. However, these are all my secondary sources and some analysis of the thing, but this is what Ralph Albertson, the guy who actually was there, wrote. Quote, The North Russian Expeditionary Force consisted of men from America, England, Canada, France, Italy, and Serbia. England sent the largest number of men, America the second largest, the other countries being represented by only a few companies each. The expedition was under the command of British War Office, which sent out a large number of unattached British officers to take charge of the Russian armies that were to be formed and to supervise all American and other officers that had been attached to the expedition. The first landing of troops of the North Russian Expeditionary Force, or the Polar Bear Expedition if you like, was in August 1918. The German armistice was signed November 11th. 
Fighting continued all winter. The American troops were withdrawn June 1919. A much larger British army landed in June. Our Russian conscripts mutinied against the English in July, making it impossible for the English to remain. The last man of the North Russian Expeditionary Force was withdrawn in September 1919. The washout was complete. England had spent $500 million and lost thousands of men. The cost to America and the other countries had been less in men and money, but considerable in other ways. The cost to Russia, in every way, had been incalculable. When this expedition was sent to Russia, the Allies were at war against Germany. Russia was not. She had signed the Brest-Litovsk Treaty. We did not declare war on Russia, nor on any section of Russians. We went, it was reasonable to suppose, to guard the military stores we had shipped to Arkhangelsk and save them from falling into German hands, and to prevent the Germans from establishing a submarine base at Murmansk. When we got there, however, the Bolshevik Russians, viewing the expedition as one of enmity to them, had removed practically all of the millions of dollars worth of stores to points far south of Arkhangelsk and had themselves left for points off from one to two hundred miles south. We pursued them. And the war began. War with the de facto government of Russia, whom, indeed, we had not recognized and against whom we had made no declaration. There was no war, technically speaking, in North Russia. There surely was no legal basis for war. But there was plenty of fighting. News of this fighting does not seem to have reached America very freely, and again, this book was written in 1920. The double English and American censorship was very effective. First, we had declared that we would not engage in military intervention in Russia. Then, having gotten into it, we declared that we were not doing it. Then, we depended on the censorship. No mention was made of this expedition in the Armistice of November. Hence, it had some subtle way it ceased to be the part of our war against Germany. It had become a new war against Bolshevik Russia, an unlegalized war. And this, it continued to be as long as the expedition lasted. Yet, no declaration was forthcoming, either of war or of peace. Particularly, one thing was the declaration of purpose. Weary months of stubborn fighting for our men were unrelieved by a single word of definition of the fight from their government. There consequently was antagonism to the campaign on the part of the soldiers. I do not say loss of morale because the term would be misunderstood. Our men fought. Our infantry never lost a foot of ground, but they hated the fight. They resented the fighting without a cause. And the author here, Ralph, apparently writes later on in the book that he made a trip in December of 1920, speaking to the men in their billets and the YMCA, pots all over the stretch of like 500 miles, and he was asking to people, why were you there for? The armistice was signed, why, why did we fight? And the response was, did they forget about us in Paris? And we don't want Russia, what the hell did we even have against the Bolsheviks? And there's a lot of questions to be asked about this whole situation, because, and this is why I just love Dan Carlin's style here, secondary sources will basically give you the same information as here, and they'll ask the whys and the whats, and one of them might be the bread scare, but um, Ralph Alderson here really speaks from his perspective and puts a human face in the whole history subject here. That's his intro, and he has many pictures in this book, and I fully recommend you look at it, because I'll be skipping over some parts, but I'll try to leave it in full and just add my comments where needed from the secondary sources and myself. He also speaks about the Arhangelsk government. Quote, When our government sent out this expedition, the government of Arhangelsk, as of all Russia, was Bolshevik. It was not a strong government, that is, it did not have a strong and dependable army and navy. It had not been regularly instituted by the people, nor had it been recognized by other governments than those with whom we were at war. We had no dealings with it, except the undeclared war of this expedition. We negotiated with certain individual Russians in London, took them to Arhangelsk with us, and there set up a government of our own taste. This was a military job. Even the military, however, find it necessary to consider popular opinion to some extent. So this new government was composed of democratic men. Tchaikovsky was made president. The people knew him and trusted him. 
His government failed to realize that first that this was only the creature of foreign military authority and began to function sincerely. Now, not to confuse you, I do have to state that this Tchaikovsky isn't the one that you know from the swans and, and the ballets and everything. Uh, that was Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky. The Tchaikovsky that we're talking about is Nikolai Tchaikovsky. He was a Russian revolutionary of the democratic kind, and he emigrated and died in England 1926. This Tchaikovsky was also a member of the irregular Freemasonic Lodge, the, quote, Grand Oriet of Russia's people, by the way, which is fun fact. And he also established Russian Red Cross during World War One, and he was one of the founders of the Union of Reconstruction of Russia, an anti-Bolshevik organization of the left parties in Moscow. This is the other Tchaikovsky, just so you know. Anyhow, the Allied military did not come to Arkhangel to set up a pure democracy, nor to encourage socialism, nor to listen to theories. Our friend here, Alderson, writes that, quote, They came to fight the plans of Germany, to fight the Bolsheviks, to guard stores, to teach Russia to fight. Beyond this, the military mind doesn't go any further. So the Venerable Tchaikovsky was gradually put aside and ignored, and before long sent to London on an important mission, not never to return but still a valuable figurehead. While the Russian military government grew up under the aegis of the British army, composed of monarchists and military men of the old school. The head of this government was General Müller, a militarist and a monarchist who is without popular Russian support and whose position is entirely due to his standing with the British military establishment. Further on, this alone shows that, well, sometimes, you know, doing black ops is not a very new thing. Ralph, about the management of the whole thing, writes, quote, It was a British show. The British were in the absolute command. Whole shiploads of British officers were sent there to perform all possible functions of management and to cover all possible needs. The Americans, Russians, French, Italians, and Serbians all obeyed British officers and found British officers duplicating their own at every juncture. Even that that there was a surplus. And I have had several of them, from a colonel down, tell me that they were hanging around Arkhangelsk waiting for something to do. It was British responsibility to decide where we should stand, when we should move, and who should do what. They never neglected this responsibility in any detail. If they could avoid it, they never delegated any detail of authority to any officer of any other nationality. If they took counsel with their associates of other nationalities, it was never heard of in the ranks. I have heard an American officer of high rank speak very bitterly of the fact that the British never consulted him, except to give him orders, and thus made him feel quite useless. So now you know about the morale of the soldiers, now you know how the British are running the show, and now you know that Mr. Woodrow Wilson is completely uninterested to actually make things clear for the common man, the boots on the ground, of why are they even there? And then the shooting began. But before we get to the shooting, I do have to state that the numbers really worry about how much actually United States troops went there. I have sources telling me there was about 4,000 troops... Ralph states it was about 5,000, and another of my secondary sources state that in early August, British with French supports occupied Arhangelsk, but with only 1,500 men. They were then joined by around 6,000 United States troops. And later on, having finally reached an agreement on Allied intervention, over 8,000 American and 18,000 Japanese troops launched in Siberia. The Japanese committed more troops than they said they would, and the Americans wanted a short occupation in support of the Czech Legion, and to be seen as neutral by the Russians. Again, more secondary sources, and that again, I'm used to this, because not like the Stalin series give me any more reasonable data. But, really, about the fighting. And this is what Ralph Alderson has to say about the fall campaign. 
As our ships rode into the mouth of the Dvina River with the first troops of the expedition and the last train pulled out of the Arkhangelsk Preestin, bearing the last of the Bolsheviks away to the south, the people of Arkhangelsk came out to the riverbank and a dock to see the incoming fleet and to welcome their deliverers from Bolshevist proletariat tyranny and prolonged political industrial unrest. The Russians were tired of war. And as they lined up on the riverbanks in front of the hundreds of peasant villages bordering a thousand versts of rivers to express their welcome, it was peace and prosperity that they thought they were welcoming. In fact, however, it was war. War such as that part of Russia had never known before, and most expensive war. The expedition had been sent to guards towards at Arhangel. And here I'd like to put in a small interlude, because uh, Sir Henry Wilson, or as he's apparently known to the British military, General Ironside, yeah, he took command of the garrison of Archangel. He's the lead guy of these British people running the whole show. And he, in September 1918, as the British were already there before the Americans came, said, quote, <clears throat> Your business in North Russia is to hold the fort until the local Russians can take the field. You are to prepare for a winter campaign. No joke, that. Secondary sources corroborate that the main British aim of the intervention, again, was to recruit a white Russian army to fight the Bolsheviks and potentially link up with the nice guys from the Czech Legion, which I again have spoken about in detail. And interestingly enough, the Japanese in Siberia, because those guys managed to run amok there as well. That is why, if you remember my um, episode about the Great Congress, the Battle of Halkingol, and their constant military struggles against the Soviets, that was a big deal before World War II. So yeah, at one point even, in fighting with the Bolsheviks about 100 miles south of Arkhangelsk, a company of Royal Marines actually mutinied, and we'll get to this mutiny a bit later on, but 93 of them were court-martial. But now, now I have to return to my primary source. Quote, Since these stores had been taken by those whom we assumed to be friends of Germany, we must pursue them. We did. We took guns along. We found them, with guns also, at several points about 100 miles from the city. Their forces were weak, so were ours. But we drove them, or they led us down the Murmansk Railroad past Kem, down the Volgoda Railroad beyond Oborzeskaya, up the Onega River to Chekunevo, up the Pinega River, up to everywhere, basically. He continues, We did not capture the enemy, nor the stores we had come to guard. The early Russian winter came and found us thrown out to seven points in a form that was like a seven-fingered hand, with one finger three hundred miles long, and with no lateral communication between the fingers. In driving these lines out there, there was some fighting, mostly of the guerrilla type. We lost a number of men, but our casualties were comparatively small. We had been on the offensive and had followed lines of not very great resistance. The positions in which Winter found us may not have been planned by the Bolsheviks, but I doubt if any English record exists of such a plan, or any officer will confess to having made such a plan. We just happened to be there. We were scattered as far as possible. Each position was practically isolated from all the others. Our lines of communication were weak and inefficient. The only protection to our flanks and our rears was the hope for snow, which came early and abundantly. Yeah, again, uh, not only have the Americans invaded northern part of Russia, they've also done that in winter. Guess how this will end up for those guys. Mr. Alderson continues and writes, The winter was spent on the defensive. The Bolshevik, and yeah, Alderson will often state he when he means the Bolshevik, by which he means the Bolsheviks, the Bolshevik forces, and in the style of 20s, I suppose, uh, it's a bit weird for me, because as you know, English is not my first language, but I kind of braved through this whole issue. Anyway, the Bolsheviks at first attempted to cut us off at Yemetskoye by using his excellent communication on the Volgoda Railroad, and attacked Kodish and Shred Makrenga, 
He was held there by the Americans and Canadians who did not know when they were defeated and who now only fully realized the desperate character of the fight they were launched upon. He also attacked on the Murmansk Railroad where he was met by seasoned Serbians against whom he shattered himself in vain. He attacked at Pinega and Chekuyevo also without success. We were fighting at Tulgas on Armistice Day, and with Kotlas at his base, the Bolshevik managed to keep up his attack, here practically all winter, while the 339th Infantry, United States of America, took the brunt of the work of holding him off. The most serious fighting on the winter, however, was on the Vaga River. Our forward position at Utspadenga was held by one company of American infantry, one platoon of American engineers, three 18-powder guns manned by Canadians, and the occasional units of Russian conscripts. The position had no peculiar advantages and all the disadvantages of isolation and exposure that could make it a bad choice. It is doubtful whether it had been chosen. We got there and we stayed there. We were there because we were there. So we entrenched and built blockhouses and strung wire and chopped away a clearing few hundred feet from our billets and laid in such stores and ammunitions a few ponies could pull down and waited. This was 27 versts south of Sherkunsk, and Sherkunsk was 100 versts south of Berezinsk, and Berezinsk was 300 versts south of Arkhangelsk. Sherkunsk was our advanced base. Here we had one company of American infantry, one platoon of American engineers, one section of Canadian artillery, American headquarters for 1st Battalion, 313th, British headquarters for the Vaga Column with all the attendant service units, and an American hospital. And, of course, miscellaneous units of Russians, numbering about a thousand, poorly organized, badly officered, and of doubtful morale. Morale is necessary, obviously, such as happiness. By the way, Sherkunsk was at that point the second largest city in the Arkhangelsk government. Technically, it had about a population of 3,000 people. It had a cathedral, though, two other churches, a monastery, and weird things going on there. It was, uh, it was something of an educational center of the district and kind of a summer resort. It was like your typical Russian small town. It was kind of crazy because, again, as Ralph writes, quote, We found a number of Petrograd and Moscow people here whose summer vacations had been prolonged by the exigencies of Russian politics. There were many excellent houses there, some mansions, some interesting people. A most comfortable place to spend the winter. He goes on, Here we fortified quite thoroughly, better perhaps than anywhere else in North Russia. To be sure, we were outflanked by Kodema, a Bolshevik village on our left, and Tarnia, a Bolshevik village on our right, a little to the rear, but otherwise we were quite comfortable. We made several attacks on these villages, but always found it necessary to retire. That is to say, you're fighting against Russian villagers who are, at this point, not yet really understood what they're fighting for, and they hate the Tsar, and then there are Americans attacking villagers. This book just, um... There's a reason why I just used so much of it, really, because I went down and really studied all the secondary sources and everything, but then I just stumbled upon this book, and and I hope you, by this point, understand why I do believe this to be the most important source. On January 19, 1919, the big fight began. The Bolsheviks, 5,000 strong, attacked Uspadenga. They had three or four times as many guns as we had, including some long-range artillery that was far beyond the reach of our guns. They had perfect observation of our positions and telephone wires clear to around to our rear. They picked off every billet, up one side of the street and down the other. We had no secrets. And their infantry came up in excellent form and spirit, covered with perfect white camo and supported with machine guns and pompons. Our men drove them back and held them up for days until the British command ordered them to fall back to Sherkonsk. One platoon of 40 men had 32 casualties, and every man in that small force had to do the work of 10 men through the terrible week. Fighting all the way back, Company A, 313th American Infantry, 
and the center section 38th battery, Canadian field artillery dragged themselves minus two guns into Sherkonsk on the night of the 25th. During that day, Sherkonsk had been bombarded from four sides and we knew that we were completely surrounded, although no Bolshevik infantry had attacked there. There were no reinforcements to be had. Some of our Russian conscripts had gone over to the enemy. There was no hope of relief from the north in case we should be besieged. There was nothing to prevent his big guns reducing Sherkus to ruins. We had Company C here as well as Company A and felt confident in our ability to hold off the Bolshevik infantry in any numbers, but his artillery had us beaten, because outranged from the start. So it was decided to evacuate that night by an unused road that we hoped the Bolsheviks had overlooked. By very clever and efficient work on the part of the British command, the evacuation of Sherkunsk was successfully carried out without the loss of a man, and we were followed by hundreds of civilians who discovered their movement in the night. That next morning, we were well to the north and we heard guns open up on Sherkunsk. The Bolshevik did not know we had escaped him. He had yet to learn that we had left behind for him 100 days rations for 2,000 men, great stores of ammunition and ordnance, all our personal kits, and several spiked guns. And here I'd kind of like to return to my secondary sources a bit. For one, as I compare and contrast these things, um, technically it was President Wilson that allowed the Supreme War Council to declare that the British commanders would command the Northern Russian Expeditionary Force. President Wilson believed that if the British commanded the troops, his own political accountability in the expedition could be minimized. Because, you know, it would look cool if the Wilson would win, but it doesn't matter if he lost, because then no one would remember. It's a British affair, after all. This political decision led the United States troops and commanders to become quickly discouraged by the situation in Russia. After the fact that they understood that the British commanded all of this North Russian expeditionary force. Again, another primary source here, Captain Martin, who was an American, commented at the time that, quote, American troops in Russia had been loaned to the British for a certain period of time. He further states that the day the American troops left Russia, they would give their American freedoms back. In the historical account of this polar mission, Lieutenant Lewis Jaynes noted that, coupled with the frustration that the British general had overall command of the expeditionary force, a general belief among the American troops was that, quote, many of the British officers were decorated with the insignia of high rank, but drew pay of low rank. It was done over and over again to give the British officer ranking authority over the American officers. This really did not settle well. And I just contrast the secondary source coldness with... With Ralph Alderson stating here, because I can just go on in proper sources, it's just very cold. Like this line. In addition to United States commanders reporting to British commanders, the British ordered the American troops to the front lines where the brunt of the battles occurred, which created ill feelings towards the British. C.T. Williams reported, quote, The British High Command has distributed the Allied forces at nearly all the positions in which fighting with the Bolsheviks is likely to occur. This is just so weird, because you can look at the reasons and statements of the historians. But let's go back to the real knights, and, uh, and the knights of fucking northern Siberia. By the night of the 26th, we reached Shagavari, having made 40 versts on a single-track sled road, walking two abreast and stretched out for miles. Here, nearly everyone snatched a little sleep, and we found two platoons of Company D who left off the vanguard the pursuit which had began to catch up on us. The civilian column, swelled now to thousands, poured on into the road ahead of us, a long winding snake-like trail of black in a white world, making it somewhere north. We evacuated Shagavari on the afternoon of the 27th, and stood for a new front at Vistavka, 16 versts north, with Kitsa 7 versts to the rear as headquarters. 
During this retreat, the temperature had been from 36 to 10 below zero. I presume it's Fahrenheit, by the way. We had brought out 97 wounded and sick, and these were sent to Berezinsk and Arkhangelsk, 300 miles on pony sleds, traveling day and night. The civilian refugees were partially Russians who had conspicuously identified themselves with us, and so were afraid of the Bolsheviks. Partly those who felt that they would be sure of food behind our lines. There were some personal friends of soldiers. And yet, there were mostly peasants whom we had been compelled to put out of their houses for military reasons. Our new front consisted of in all of eight villages. At first a barricade of pine branches and snow, then some logs, then come blockhouses, then some wire after a while dug out or two. The fighting here at Vistavka was the hardest and the most continuous of the winter. Every day there was some shelling, and five major attacks were made before March 1st, when we were forced to make kits our forward position. The fighting at Vistavka was done by the companies A, C, D, and F, by Royal Scouts and King's Real Liverpools, by Russians and by the splendid Canadian artillery units who were fortunately reinforced by a 4.5 Hovitzer EVA. The old artillery supremacy of the Bolsheviks remained unchanged, however. And while 7,000 infantry having surrounded Vistafa could not take it, the guns did reduce it to untenability. From March 1st to April 20th, Kitsa was the front line, with Maximovskaya for support on our right and our guns at Idnafovskaya. These villages lay only one and two versts apart. We were preparing for Maloberzinsk, seven versts in the rear for defense, and fell back on the Easter Sunday. The stubborn resistance on our part was important because it was absolutely necessary to hold the enemy here, or he would cut off the whole Dvina column and take Bereznik, while he had accumulated great stores of supplies and munitions. Bereznik was his goal and the Vaga River his road. He hammered away daily at Tuglas, our Dvina River fort, but that was to keep Company B and our other forces there. He could not hope to take it. On May the 1st, the international labor holiday, the Bolshevik opened up on every front, making the supreme effort of the year. His heaviest blow fell on Maloberzinsk. The ice had begun to run out of the Vaga and the upper Dvina, enabling the Bolsheviks to mount guns on barges, while our gunboats were still frozen at Arhangelsk. When he had put 5,000 shells into Maloberzinsk and burned down every house, Bolshevik infantry came on, only to be fearfully cut up and sent back again and again. He was deeply disappointed. The thing was inexplicable, so on May 5th he came again, this time with 8,000 shells as a prelude, and when the last futile wave of his infantry had gone to pieces under our fire, and we had taken prisoner hundreds of his men who had been sent to surround us, we knew that he had done his worst, and the winter campaign was practically at an end. And next, Ralph, and I do have to say that this episode is very hard for me to make, actually, because reading these first-hand accounts is hard, and <laughs> that is a reason why I chose stylistically to make this episode as this. He reports their stay at Kisa, and he describes it, I'll abbreviate this, but um, he writes, <clears throat> quote, Kisa was not a Bolshevist town nor a royalist. It was constitutional social democratic. It was founded by refugees from Novgorod who could rebel against certain imperialist church decrees. There was still a little mound where these glorious ancestors had erected the Hill of Freedom, and the freedom of itself had been retained intact, so the oldest inhabitant told me, it having been a matter of the text and the type of the holy book read in church. I rode through Kitsa once when there was one platoon of American soldiers quartered there, and the civilian population was about normally occupied with its own life. And then I came in with the refugees from Sherkunsk on the night of January 27th. First was Bracket Lewis and Ivan Tsarolavtsev, serving hot coffee and biscuits to the exhausted soldiers in the building that the people had built and used for a public school, but the Allied military had commandeered, not to store whiskey in, as in Bereznik, but to run a canteen in. 
Then it was caring for the 97 wounded, then back to the men and civilian refugees until the full daylight in the column was all in. We took the three best houses in town for hospital that night. The British officers took the next best, then the American officers. And that following day we billeted troops in every house, and the Russian people made room for us, welcomed us, waited for us, made nothing of themselves, moved into their bathhouses, then out again if we wanted them, gave us all the room there was, gladly, believed in us. I shall always remember a poor woman who came into an officer's room and opened the table drawer to look for 200 silver rubles she had left there. The lock had been forced. The rubles were gone. Silver rubles were very precious. The woman's tearful face did not express so much grief as surprise. She had discovered something most unwelcome about our soldiers, perhaps officers. Other Russians were learning to hate the military for other reasons. In three days they were utterly bewildered. They do not take disillusionment in our offhand familiar way. They are serious people. Their illusions are genuine. No literature and no sophistication, but great sincerity. So completely did these kitsides give way to us that when the order for their evacuation went forth, we gained no room, for we already had it all. One pretty girl came us in despair one morning, because one of us could talk Russian and told us that the Cossacks had broken into her stores in the night and stolen everything. We found that they had left much. It is remarkable how effectively and cleverly these people can secrete their goods. But she knew that they would get the rest in time anyway, so she begged us to take it from her as a gift. We learned she was the daughter of the merchant who was presumably the richest man in town. Her parents had gone to Arkhangelsk. She could refuse to go. Her brothers were in Bolshevik territory. She had attended school in Moscow. She was now something of a socialist and utterly out of sympathy with her family. We bought all her goods. Some hand-woven skirt material, some foodstuff, some oats and flour. She went to work at British HQ as a scholarly maid and was glad of the chance. I do think she was irritated considerably by the attentions paid to her because she was a pretty girl. They were, of course, most unartful and blatant, as well as general. A week after the peasants were evacuated, the engineers who were cutting machine gun holes in the bathhouses found the frozen body of an old woman who had hidden herself in a bathhouse and died there rather than go away from the village where she had spent all her life. The body lay untouched for a week. Bodies froze like ice or iron when the temperature was below zero. One awful night, we had been horribly shelled and the evacuation of the town was hourly imminent there. There were nine frozen bodies laid side by side in the woodshed behind the hospital. We should have to leave them there, just as we had left others at Sherkunst and Shagavari. I had known all these boys. Five American, two Englishmen, two Russians. And as I stood out there in the cold and dark, so in night, I knew war. But there were other nights as bad, nights when we sat by them as they were dying and waiting for the operating table. God, what nights, and we had to pack them off in the cold at once to a safer town to the north. Then there came a night that nearly made me forget all the others. Our forward position and only protection was demolished utterly. We were forced to abandon it, and our men and guns all crawled into Kits and across the river back to Kits to Ivkanovskaya. We were done. We had put up such a fight, however, the enemy was done too, but we did not know this. And the wounded came in that awful night, and the dead. We did not sleep a wink. When the sun rose on Kitsa, Kitsa too was dead. The order was for everybody to stand too, and the streetful stood all day long, waiting, and nothing happened. After the continuous thunder of the days before, not a gun was fired. But Kitsa was dead, and the engineers were going about setting every house and building with kerosene inside and out for burning. Every kit was packed. Not a thing but cinders was to be left. Kitsa was a thing of the past. And although nothing did happen, and weary men could not stand to forever, and everybody crawled inside and slept, Kitsa was dead. 
One day I went to the cemetery where a man had been buried on our graves and for the most part identified the places and then visited the little chapel which had been looted in the churches. The Bibles were printed from hand-cut plates. The silver ornaments on the Bibles and the elaborate candelabra were all handmade in every detail of construction and decoration. The soldiers had left them only because of their size. All little things had been taken. All kits that was just like the cemetery and the churches. But the tragedy had passed over for the moment. It was a peaceful death. Not even the paltry dozen shells sent over by the Bolsheviks to remind us that the war was still on made a difference to this piece. Yeah, these are... These are very emotional lines, honestly, because you can feel the understanding and suffering of the people and no amount of everything would actually do. And here, again... This is crazy, because secondary sources again state to me that, quote, In addition to the British offensive strategy in Russia disturbing President Wilson, American troops looked upon the British strategy with great skepticism. The United States troops thought President Wilson sent them to take defensive position on the Hengelsk and secure munitions supplies under direct threat from German forces. However, after marching 200 miles south of Arhangelst, Ruggles commented, quote, The United States troops believe that they are being used to further selfish designs of England upon Russian territory and resources. American soldiers believe that the British used the mask of creating an eastern front in order to pursue imperialistic goals. Weimeister comments in his diary, quote, There were no supplies. Actually, the British wanted to occupy and conquer the state of North Russia in order to obtain the pine from the forests. And yeah, from the primary sources too, uh, this is, again, Alderson continuing. He writes, quote, During the very last day of our tenure of Kitsa, the friction between the British command and the Americans at the front became quite serious. The command wanted certain risks taken and sacrifices made in the judgment of the Americans were without sufficient purpose and justification. The American officers were unwilling to make what they deemed useless sacrifice of their men. So bitter did this feeling become that at one time the British commanding officer gave certain orders to the Canadian field artillery, which the Canadians undoubtedly would not have obeyed. The British command had its troubles with them also. In spite of all of this, however, Kitsa was held against the enemy under the river ice actually broke under the men as they came out, leaving more desolation and ruin to the slowly conquering Bolsheviks. And then here we must look again at the American soldiers fighting in this war, because Mr. Wilson might have sent it there for political reasons or just to appease the Allies. But the soldiers there, they faced some really strange things and from the secondary sources, quote, the United States Expeditionary Force began to doubt if fighting the Bolsheviks really held the war effort against Germany. Although great doubt tripled through the American troops, British General Poole devised an aggressive strategy to deploy Allied forces down south through the Trans-Siberian Railroad. He assumed the Red Army comprised of starving peasants and the North Russian people, quote, would rally behind the Allies. With these assumptions, he hoped the Russians in their Hungarysk and Murmansk would create a massive volunteer army led by the new provisional government. This volunteer army would bolster relatively small allied forces in Russia. However, realities of the ground, such as you heard about, proved to contradict General Spool's assumptions. In actuality, the Red Army resisted allied forces instead of deserting. The North Russian people did not rise en masse against the Bolsheviks, and the allied force was too small to push his forces into Petrograd without American reinforcements. The British commander reluctantly retreated back to Arkhangelsk and Murmansk. This provided for a long winter as American troops wondered why they were fighting the Bolsheviks instead of the Germans, and President Wilson had refused to send appropriate reinforcements. But again, from this text, you understand nothing. However, let's read on from Ralph Alderson. Hey everyone, I hope you are enjoying or at least appreciating this really sad episode of The Eastern Border. As always, thanks to our supporters on Patreon, because it's you guys who make our podcast possible. 
Just a quick reminder that Christophs is going to be speaking at the Sound Education Conference in Harvard from the 2nd to the 3rd of November. And on the 4th of November, he'll be hanging around Boston being guided by his colleague and friend Sam Davis from the Inward Empire podcast. So if you want to join, let us know. You can send us a message on our Facebook page. And to keep up to date with all the developments, follow us on Twitter at Eastern underscore Border. Also, an interview is being planned right now with Sebastian Major from Our Fake History Podcast, who's doing his own mini-series talking about the historical myths concerning Stalin. I hope you enjoy having him on the show. That's all of the housekeeping for now. What do you think of this episode? Did you already know all of this stuff? Some of this stuff? Or is this completely new to you? Let us know what you think by leaving us a comment. And as always, see you online. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chapter 7 of this book is called Fighting Without a Flag. And this is from that chapter, a bit of an abbreviation. Quote, The American soldier who was sent to northern Russia for his part in the Great War had an experience which in several respects was novel in the vast field of experience which the war imposed on Americans. One of these that he had to fight without his flag. Not only was the flag absent from the front lines in accord with the best practices of modern warfare, but the flag as a symbol and the consciousness of what it symbolizes were equally absent for the most part from his billet, his conversation, his mess in the whole campaign. He was fed with foreign food, clothed in part with foreign clothes, invading a foreign country, given orders by foreign officers and fighting a war that was foreign to all he had ever thought of America. He had gone into the army to fight Germany, and there he fought himself after the armistice, fighting an unknown foe with whom the United States was not at war with, and quite as much out of sympathy with the officers of another nationality whom he had to obey as with the men whom he was trying to kill. His government had not told him why he was there, what grievances it had against his enemies, what arrangements it had with its allies in this expedition, nor what it hoped to accomplish if successful in the enterprise for which he daily must offer his life. His officers could not tell him. They had never been told. They wanted to know. What they did know was that at every turn, in every position, in every piece of work, in every detail of responsibility, an English officer stood over them telling them what to do. Sometimes the officer was very young. Sometimes his train was necessary to get adequate rank to him. Sometimes the English officer was utterly inexperienced. 
The method of the British control of the Allied expedition to North Russia is a subject for study, which I am doing right now at this point, and um, I'm just stunned by how little known this is, and furthering on, an example for warning that the League of Nations may well heed. If thousands of Americans have gone home thoroughly detesting the name and the memory of everything English, and if other thousands of Englishmen are telling each other and being told that Americans are cowards, and the same breath that they are insolent and unmanageable, it is chiefly to be blamed on the British method of managing an Allied campaign. It might be supposed that the British, being appropriately and properly in supreme command, would have given their orders, as far as they applied, solely to the operations of purely American units, to the responsible American officers leaving these officers without pity interference to get the work accomplished. But it was not so. British officers did not give their orders to American colonels to be passed down the line. In fact, they had very little use for American colonels. They went to the captains, the lieutenants, and even the sergeants and corporals and the men themselves. They ignored the American officers most noticeably. They set their own pity officers upon the Americans in a manner that was most irritating to American national self-esteem and bitterly resented. And since all necessary things are reasonable to the military mind, it was the greatest tact to explain that, quote, the Americans know nothing about military matters, you know. I do not feel that the Americans had a grievance necessarily because the old glory did not wave above them in North Russia. I can imagine that they could have fought with excellent morale in France if they had not their colors with them. The case consists of aggravating circumstances. The men were made to feel most unnecessarily and quite contrary to the fact that they had been handed to England and forgotten, that their government was wholly unmindful of them, and for the time, at least, they were deprived of the protection and the divorce from the ideals of which the stars and the stripes have always stood as a symbol in their minds. I did see the flag once in American headquarters of Sherkonsk, but it was inside and inconspicuous, and few soldiers go at the HQ. I saw one flying on YMCA building, but it was of course ordered down for perfectly good and adequate reasons. I read in the soldier's letter to his sweetheart once, For God's sake, send me a little flag in your next letter. I haven't seen one since I came to this awful country. One soldier had a barishnya make him a little flag from old bunting with embroidered stars. And I have seen more than one lonely American pull out a little flag out of his pocket and kiss it. And that's a thing I can probably understand your emotions here, my dear American listeners, because you take your flags super seriously. And I now have an American flag in my room. I have an American girlfriend, too, so, hey, but uh, we don't take this reverence to the flag so much, because it doesn't mean as much to us here in Europe as it means to you, but the sheer weight of the words about how much it means to have some connection to your home, while fighting off in a place where Mr. Wilson sent you for God knows why, and not even supporting you, literally sending you for no reason, because the reason is like, yeah, yeah, whatever, let's waver these papers around. This is kind of crazy, and and this whole emotion of being an American is something that I do not even presume to understand. In fact, I do feel much closer to people in village there than, than I feel to the American soldiers. However, you don't blame the soldiers for this crap. You literally just pinpoint this one at Mr. Wilson and the British High Command, who, well, to be honest, who would ever think that invading Russia from the north in winter would be an awesome idea? But continuing on with the story here, and I'm sorry that this episode is emotional, but some of them are. Quote, At Sherkursk, we were invited to hold our Christmas exercises in the monastery church. This is probably the greatest innovation ever ventured by the ecclesiastical establishment of that town. Seats were provided, the icons covered, the abbess and nuns safely ensconced in the gallery to appease their curiosity, and the forces marching in. American soldiers and officers, a few Canadian artillerists and British HQ staff. Americans greatly predominated in numbers. A British chaplain read the service concluding naturally with God save the king. 
As we filed out, the American private was heard to remark, whoever heard of the Star Spangled Banner anyhow. And uh, this, this line really, really moves on to me because the author here, Ralph, hopes that, quote, I shall not hope that the academicians, businessmen, politicians, and sensible people generally will see anything in this but a thin sentimentalism. I should not have appreciated it had I not lived with men who were daily facing death for a cause unknown, without patriotic background or personal interest, and under the insistent domination of officers of another nation who looked down upon them and talked about them discreditably. If we had British soldiers here, we should drive the bolos out in short order. But what can be done with these miserable Americans and Russians? The antipathy the British officers felt toward Yankees was acquired early in the campaign and increased intensity toward the end. In some measure, it was the Yankees' fault too, and to some extent the product of facts and forces that are beyond the control of individuals. There was disapproval and jealousy of the over-prominence America had too easily acquired in the Great War. There was the resentment of the favoritism of the Russians for the Americans. There was the inheritance of pride and the military achievements of the Empire. There was utter ignorance of the motives and purposes of the present English government. But there was also the independence and quote-unquote insolence of the Yankees, their free and easy attitude towards British official dignity, their insistence upon reasons why, and their assumption of the knowledge and ability <laughs> quite beyond anything their experience in military matters justified. And these little irritations grew and were magnified in little minds until the matter of the Yankee salute itself became a moat in the British eye. And then again, this is... this is crazy about how it's kind of like a reality show, except in the most dire circumstances where you don't even understand what's going on. And, and especially this, because again, I'm skipping over these things because Ralph again speaks about how he personally experienced all this situation. Quote, I have heard the most caustic and untrue criticism of American soldiers from the lips of English officers whose rank should in itself have been guarantee that they would not descend to this. I have heard it hinted at a score of times by pity officers who, out of consideration for my presence, did not pursue the subject into its commonplace ends. And repeatedly, members of the new British army that had never seen the Yanks at all said to me in all friendliness, Ah, what a pity that your men out here were not real Americans, they were foreigners, and that they gave America such a black eye by their conduct. That was a direct echo of the campaign of vilification of the American soldier, which was carried on within their own circles by certain British officers of the North Russian Expeditionary Force. I overheard some English soldiers singing a parody of Over There, of which I can only remember, quote, The Yanks are running, the Yanks are running everywhere, and the last line, and they didn't do a damn thing about it over there. This was at Hangetsk. There were no Yankee soldiers about. They were the front. The singing which had been in the subdued tone was stopped immediately when my presence was observed and when we had finished the little conversation, the Tommies sang over there and they sang it straight. There was no anti-Yank feeling in these men. They had genuine admiration for the Yankee soldiers. They had picked up the little seeds of antipathy from some of their officers. As a matter of fact, and this uh, also is corroborated by my other sources, the Americans fought well in North Russia. They literally drove the Bolsheviks 427 versts of south of Arkhangelsk before winter set in, and, and then they defended well. They did constant patrols, they made expeditions, they were flanked all the time, and this was like seven fronts at the same time, which was a logistical military nightmare. And this was kind of fucking crazy that those guys are doing insane things while being commanded by British officers who do not respect them, while being in a hostile territory, and being sent there in general. And now, later on, and it's been, what, a hundred years? It's 2018 now. It's October 2018. It's the fucking hundredth anniversary of this campaign. And yet, most people haven't even heard of this story about one of the most useless times 
where allies did an military action. Just just think about it, because that is the biggest issue I have sometimes with the lesser-known facts in history, and uh, a lot of people often in my show, and this is going to be a huge tangent here, a lot of people think I'm Russophobic, I'm not. It's not about Russian people or anything, it's about the Russian government, and and yeah, in cases like this, well, honestly, Mr. Woodrow Wilson, you done goofed here. You you don't make half steps. You don't just send people off to die under the command of other people because and when you read like other history books or something, this, you get the dry date about how well the American soldiers were getting disillusioned there had been troubles with the British. No, 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 these were the troubles. This is what they felt. And carrying on Captain Odyard of Company A was decorated by the British government, and the company was praised for its gallant work at Uspadenga and Vistavka. And yet the British Tommies of the new army asked me in July, quote, What was it that the Yanks turned tail at Uspadenga? The charges made by the British that the American soldiers were unreliable and mutinous were founded correctly on the mental attitude of the American soldier and upon the things he said. He hated the expedition and its management. But those charges were not fairly founded about anything that the American soldier did. There was an instance of one company refusing at one time to go out in the front. It was but a temporary refusal. They went. There were several parallel instances when British and Canadian and French soldiers resorted to similar semi-mutiny. It was always momentarily. They always eventually went forward with the unequal fight, despite the inhuman conditions. The dissatisfied and happy soldier was not yellow. He may have had some sympathy for the Bolsheviks whose country he was unwillingly invading. He certainly felt that invasion was a crime, but he was not yellow. He obeyed orders. He fought splendidly. He went to his death. He held his post. He cursed the British and did his duty. He killed the Bolsheviks, plenty of them, not knowing why. Another important thing about all the situation is that we must look at how the Russians treated the Americans fighting there themselves. And again, if you want to read this in full, please, it's freely available on Gutenberg.org. Yeah, about everything here, what the soldiers really felt there, at least from this report, is... Um, is all Americanness, and here you can see some things that how I feel about Americans in a certain way, and the West in general. Because even though even though we're friendly and cool, there are some some weird things in the mentality here. And I quote here: "There was one thing in North Russia that touched every American, where every normal man is sentimental. There was a passion for America. In every log house, there was love for America. In the hearts of the people in every village, there was moving what Benjamin Kidd calls the emotion of ideal." We could not understand it at first. Every peasant greeted us with America Dabra, which is not good Russian, but sort of a slang phrase meaning that America is alright. Or America is good. And now and then one would step up a little nearer and in a more subdued tone say that some other country was not alright. We suspected at first that Russians were playing a double game. We remember the man who walks like a bear. We will smile cynically and handed him a cigarette. But we did him an injustice. One heavily whiskered old peasant of Kitsa made me see this injustice. We had crawled into Kitsa on the second night after the evacuation of Sherkusk, with the weather about 20 below zero and bringing with us 97 wounded on sleds. The senior medical officer had selected the best houses on Kitsa for hospital purposes, and one could never forget how cheerfully on 10 minutes' notice those peasant people got themselves and their things out of the way and helped get the patients in and warm and fed. Two of these houses belonged to my beviscered friend. He was something of a magnate in Kitsa. And it turned out that we were to use his houses for hospital purposes for months after that night, sending him and his on their northward way for safety in the company of refugees from seven other villages. His property interests in Kitsa, however, were too important in his old life to be ignored, and in a few days he was back with a sled convoy and a common driver, a labor which he persisted in as long as the fortunes of war permitted for the sake of opportunity it gave him to look things over. 
Knowing that the hospital was an American affair, the old man was quite delighted that his houses had been chosen for this purpose. America Dabra, he said to me exultantly. One day I happened to discover that in both houses the private rooms in which the precious family possessions had been stored and secured by heavy padlocks had been broken open and the contents looted and despoiled. Most of the fabrics and silverware and family goods pulled out and of trunks and bros were of no use were of interest of soldiers and had been thrown on the floor and trampled underfoot. It was wanton and heartless, and believing that our boys had at least a hand in it, I was ashamed and chagrined. It was painful to remember the gleam of faith in the old Mongolian eyes when he said America Dabra. When he came again and I saw the gloom on his face was terrible. He had seen the wreck. Apologetically offered my condolences. America Nidabra. No, he's slowly in Russian. No, war is at fault. War is not good. America Dabra. So I had to think again. I hadn't seen far enough into the soul behind his bushy face, and I didn't smile cynically as I handed him the cigarette. After a while, we learned to discriminate between Amerikanski and America. The peasants often handed us personal compliments, but what we learned is that when they praised America, they were not talking about us, but about an idea, an ideal, a dream. Which I could say a fact. These Russian peasants have not read American history. They do not know American politics. Most of them probably have not read 500 words about America in all their lives, but they have heard and talked about America some, and thought about America more. Perhaps there are many well-read Americans who would profitably think about America more, even in a loss of time to read. And now the Mujik of North Russia and his wife and children have all of them seen Americans, real-life ones, and, and like them. How much the Russian peasant liked the American soldier is a little difficult for me to convey without seeming to exaggerate. And, by the way, for me as a Latvian here, I can understand why he felt that way and, and how these people are actually generous and, and sincere. This, this is Eastern Europe, people. This is who we are. So, another emotional thing for me. Carrying on. I was skeptical about it for months. It might be bear love. He was always begging for cigarettes and one could easily see through his cupidity and simple craft. But I saw American soldiers billeted in Russian homes and mixing with the Russians so much that I am sure that I know the true sentiments in this case. I've been asked by the English soldiers more than once. Why is it that Russians like Yankees so much better than they do us? And I asked this question about the comparison of intelligent-looking Russian soldier. Why do you Russians like the Yanks so well? Because they shake hands like men, he answered thoughtfully. Because they treat us as equals, because they are good to the Russian people. And the next day, when we were talking about the same subject, he said, It is because they represent America to us that we like the Yankee soldiers. And this was kind of crazy, because over here, and I'll be frank about it, but yeah, well, most of my listeners are American, but honestly, you American people are much nicer to us Eastern Europeans here, sincerely, than most Western Europeans, because, I don't know, maybe it's because we are the middle of nowhere at the EU, but as far as my personal experiences go, excuse me, but the Frenchmen so far have been the worst followed by the British. A lot of British have been, well, quite rude and imperialistic, but then again, every American who's visited this place has been really nice, and not to generalize here, but yeah, I can understand why this subjective view of this Russian officer might be that way, because I really don't know what's up with you American optimistic people, but your cheerfulness and optimism is something that we don't get in these parts. And, well, we might make fun of you sometimes, and not undeservingly, but I'm not really sure if most people around in these parts would be angry at Americans. But that's a very huge ass tangent here. The continuation, however, this is not as great, because here we speak about, again, Woodrow Wilson and why I don't like him personally. After this, and reporting some other experiences with the Russians, Ralph Alderson writes, quote, 
Yet there was another side to this picture. When I first came to Arkhangelsk, there was in a people all faith wonderful in a way in Mr. Wilson. I marveled how all these Russians could have learned so much about him. They knew what he had said. They knew what he stood for before the word. I wondered that the people at home knew as well. Pictures of the American president soon made their appearance and were given great prominence throughout the city and in every village. I was calling on the editor of a Russian newspaper hundreds of miles up the river one day. He could use a few English words and I a few Russian. Mr. Wilson's picture hung over his desk. The friend of the Russian people, he said, pointing to the picture, and as he looked at it, tears slowly gathered. Turning toward me, he said brokenly, he is the one man in all the world who can lead Russia out of her troubles. And I gathered that one reason for his faith was because Bolsheviks respected and feared Mr. Wilson. This man was on Bolsheviks' blacklist. His paper was radically socialistic, however, and the editor was quite distrustful of the results of the Allied expedition. But he believed in Mr. Wilson. He will soon speak, he said, and then all Russia will follow him. That was in December. In June, I met this editor in Arkhangelsk. His home and printing plant had long been in the hands of the Bolsheviks. There was pathetic sadness in his face as he told me of the universal hopelessness of the people. I boomed the League of Nations. It would cure the wrongs, it would become the guide and instruments of salvation, but there was no response of hope. We have lost Mr. Wilson and there is no hope. But after we are all killed off in this mad and hopeless struggle, Russia will rise out of the ruins and show the way of real democracy. The problem is that... And this is, this is again, me and my own analysis and reading a terrible amount of all these sources here. But, uh, but yeah, Mr. Wilson turned out not to be so nice. Mr. Wilson was centralizing the power in his own hands, and he literally endorsed birth of a nation. And he wasn't a very great guy in general, and he was also the man responsible for the first trade red scare. But this question here, which it matters a lot, because it's very important even today kind of counteract some elements when, when someone says, oh, the Russians did this, or the Russians did that. No, 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 the Russians didn't do jack shit. The Russians are most oppressed by their own leader, Putin, who does crazy things. Just saying. Because oftentimes, yeah, again, another criticism levied upon me is that I, for some reason, don't like Russians. But no, I do like them, and I do hope that this dream of this guy becomes the reality. And sometimes, yeah, this looked kind of similar to the fact on how we looked at Bill Clinton in the early 90s from over here in Latvia. How we looked at your American presidents at that point, people who showed interest in us. And uh, yeah, at some point you have to idealize these people because of all the weird imagery that sometimes gets down to us. The problem is that your average Latvian probably has only thinks that Trump is awesome because he's, you know, he's strong-willed and he's a real American and they really do not involve themselves in internal affairs and at the same point well a lot of people thought well barack obama was great because he accepted things in we, we we don't deal with american political parties in the same way that you guys from america do we literally do look at america as some sort of an idea in a way but obviously there are a bunch of flaws at the same time you really have to separate the people and the ideals that you have built upon certain people from who they really are and how this how this works boy has this turned into a philosophy episode Oh, let's turn down to chapter 9, as this is going to end soon. Like I said, it's not a very long book. But for a podcast episode, full with my own ramblings and secondary sources and analysis, pretty big. And to conclude all this, let's speak about how the America exited from this whole thing. When it was openly announced that the American troops were to be withdrawn from North Russia, the Bolshevik propaganda took every possible advantage of it, claiming that President Wilson, and this is 1919, the Great Red Scare in America, Claiming that President Wilson was now their friend and that America would all soon recognize their government. A certain type of Englishman also made use of the opportunity to call to the attention to the Russians 
that the fact that their much-praised American friends were now leaving them to the mercy of Bolsheviks, except for the great friendship of England for Russia. England would not desert Russia. We felt great uncertainty at this time. Not a man of us had one authorized word of explanation to make. Our government is silent. Our enemies were noisy. But the Russian peasant never wavered a hair's breadth in his faith in the friendship of America. If the Americans were going home, then that was the best thing to do. If the English were staying, then perhaps that was not the best thing to do. And when the departure took place and the Yankees picked up their old kit bags for home, they were given the warmest goodbyes and God bless you was in Russian, there was no indication of resentment at being left in a bad predicament. I, that is Rolf, stood on the bank of the Yemtse River when the platoons of Company K embarked on the barge and waved their farewells to the theater of war. I was the only American left behind. On the riverbank, nearly the entire population of Yemetskoya were assembled, dressed in their best clothes and giving every possible evidence to their regard and esteem for these boys. As the barge swung down the river with soldiers singing, Keep the home fires burning! I saw many a handkerchief wiping tears away on the riverbank, and the headman of Zemsko, Pravda, who stood beside me all dressed up in a white shirt, had tears in his eyes too, as he grasped my hand and said again, as he had said repeatedly before, Amerikanski Dabri. I saw these American boys embark at Arhangelian Economy. Four great liners loaded with them, for Brest. Arhangel was busy welcoming an incoming British army. There were no demonstrations here except those of American joy, exuberant, selfish joy, for the war at last was over in those days of June, for these 5,000 men who for a year had done the work of 25,000 on a job that called for 50,000 or more. And the very last to leave were those who perhaps had done the hardest work. Companies A, B, and C of the 310th Engineers. These men embarked on the transport at Arhangelsk at June 26th, and the American expedition was at an end. When these men were gone, Arhangelsk was a lonesome place for an American. They were affectionately remembered by the Russians, and there certainly were some among them to remember the love and gratitude and admiration of old Russians and wrinkled eyes, and the simple wonderful faith of these backward and romantic peasants, in the land that symbolized to them freedom, education, and justice, really. And now for a bit of analysis, because you have to look at this very emotional retelling, which I don't see any reason why it would be untrue. If you look at what the additional historical data, also incoming from Russian sources, state us, is that, yeah, the Bolsheviks had used this foreign intervention as a propaganda tool, obviously, to rally the Russian people to their cause. Uh, C.T. Williams of the American Red Cross notes, quote, The presence of the Allied expedition in North Russia constitutes one of the strongest pillars of the Bolshevik government. And he is serious at this point. See, the Soviets used the foreign intervention as a tool to facilitate anger of the Russian people against the Allied presence. There was a leaflet handed out by the Soviets labeled Antanta, the Entente, which literally depicts Uncle Sam and British capitalists holding leashes of anti-Bolshevik leaders. This propaganda of the Soviets proved very successful as the Soviet army just grew stronger. The U.S. military intelligence summary of the time stated, quote, Within the last two months, the whole Bolshevik forces have been reorganized and a serious attempt is being made to create a large, well-disciplined army in the European model. Led by Trotsky, no less, but we'll get to him in the following episodes. Before long, as you heard here, the strength of the Soviet army mounted an offensive against the Allies, and their other intelligence reports wordly stated that, quote, The enemy is systematically accumulating troops on all fronts with the view of a general offensive before the thaw. I like how uh, my secondary sources, I just have to pull out this quote here, because um, <clears throat> you heard how it was, and now you there's this single sentence here. Furthermore, the reinvigorated Soviet army bombarded Allied positions with long-range artillery. This is the thing why I like doing my podcast, why I like this oral history, and why I dig up all this stuff, the lesser-known stuff for all you people. Oh boy, <laughs> when I'll go to Harvard, I'll, I'll discuss the academy with you, but... 
This matters. See, throughout late 1918 and early 1919, Allied officials pleaded with President Wilson to send reinforcements to Russia to counter the new Bolshevik offensive. The troops received constant bombardments of artillery from the Soviets, and that was a very cold winter indeed. The majority of American troops literally stayed on the front lines and did not filter back to Anhangaisk. General Stewart at this point sent an urgent letter to the Secretary of War, stating that, quote, The enemy are becoming more numerous on all fronts and are more active. The Allied command is small and we have no reserves. So what did Wilson, Wilson do? Well, um, nothing. Wilson's administration did not respond to the calls for reinforcements. Further, pleas by United States military officials to the White House administration stated that knowledge of reinforcements would, quote, improve the troops after their long winter. Moreover, the British embassy in Russia made urgent, quote-unquote, appeals to the State Department for reinforcements. While the military officers of the Allied forces requested these reinforcements, President Wilson maintained that the force would remain small in order to allow the Russian people to decide their own political fate. At least, that's what claimed here. That's the nice little public statement. Obviously, it is way easier to send other soldiers to die in your own wars. While it's pretty obvious that by this point, if this is the first time that you've heard of this American invasion of Russia, then... Yeah, uh, thank Mr. Wilson for that, that the horrors these men endured and their experiences there have been mostly forgotten. Interestingly enough, um, another fun source, because I just like to combine these secondary sources together in this case. While President Wilson remained steadfast in his determination to keep the American expedition force small, Major Francis Riggs urged him to send reinforcements that would allow, quote, General Poole to move to more populous regions where he could secure volunteers. His refusal to heed this message really depicts the ultimate shortcoming of Wilson's policy of no reinforcements. With Wilson refusing to send more troops, it literally paralyzed any effort to rally Russian people against the Bolsheviks. And uh, there's another chapter of the book that I'll read you, because Ralph uh, goes on stating about his experience as being the last American there, organizing the retreats and everything, and he speaks about the new British army, which is not important at this point anymore in time. But um, he also speaks about the Bolsheviks, how they entered, and their atrocities. We'll get to that later. This whole thing, this stuff that happened there, is just stupid. And um, about the fact that they had to fight there after the armistice, they even went there. Uh, Captain Aegis Martin wrote, quote, They, which is the United States troops, stated that they were drafted in to fight Germany, not the Bolsheviks. That they had been sent there to guard supplies and not carry on aggressive warfare. That after the signing of the armistice with Germany, their job was finished. And if the government wanted them to stay and fight Bolshevism... It should say so, and announce some definite policy regarding Russia. American troops expected that Mr. Wilson would explain why they were still fighting in North Russia, but President Wilson, to their dismay, fervently expressed to the press that, quote, United States was not at war with the Bolsheviks. Captain Ruggles wrote to General Pershing, quote, The morale of our troop has been low since the signing of the armistice with Germany. The men and some of the officers seem unable to understand why should they be kept in Russia after fighting a stop with Germany. There is important letters and this whole book that I'm reading to you, because all the chapters are literally that small, I'm just skipping over them. The book that I've been reading to you is, is super tiny, and they literally depict everything and other primary sources too, I just picked the most colorful one. Well, the question of why they fought in Russia, obviously the morale declined. And they were labeled as cowards by the British because of this. But as we saw and heard here, they were not cowards. They were not yellow, so to speak. They were not shivering and anything. They were just doing their duty without any fucking reasons why, to be honest. Interestingly enough, after the signing of the armistice, Chicago and Detroit Press, which at this point was home of the most members of the expeditionary force, because, yeah, most of them came from Chicago and Detroit, depicted the whole situation in North Russia to their readers. 
The majority of the sources used by newspapers came from censored letters sent home from the soldiers. Usually, the newspapers published the exact letters in full. Moreover, sometimes the journalists would interpret the letters and they even exaggerate the harsh conditions. The newspapers often produced political caricatures of the situation in North Russia. For example, after reports of the Allied forces were outnumbered 6-1 to one in some battles, which is a strategic blunder, an error of the military intelligence part and the command, which as we saw were all British... Yeah, the Chicago Tribune depicted a large beer symbolizing the Soviets towering over a single American soldier. Because why not make propaganda of the people suffering? And at this point, I'm literally bashing the American government at this, so, so you know. In addition, the newspaper started to question why American troops were still fighting in Russia if the war was over. Another time, Chicago Tribune published a cartoon that depicted two American soldiers in Arhangelsk asking each other, Say, when did we declare war in Russia? Furthermore, an editor in Chicago Tribune commented, quote, Our men are dying for a cause, the purpose of which they are no more certain than we in America. America has not declared war on Russia, but Americans are killing Russians or are being killed by them. These editorials showed the American people that the President Wilson did not have a policy in North Russia, and that the American troops faced an enemy that outnumbered them and just knew everything about them. After the United States troops read some of the national papers, it had a significant impact on the American troops' morale once again. As we saw here, they became quickly discouraged about the object of our mission, as many times newspapers received that information from Soviet propaganda, which in turn predicted an ominous future for the American troops. In the, quote, History of the American Expeditionary Force, written by three members of the American Expedition, there is another recalling, and it's being recalled that, quote, When a man's own home paper printed the same story as Bolshevik propaganda of the million men advancing on Arhangelsk with bloody bayonets affixed, and all the horrible hardships the soldiers endured... Many of them were indeed severe hardships, although most of the news stories were overdrawn and untruthful. The doughboy spirit was depressed. The American newspaper stories eventually circulated in Hungarsk, which obviously again hurt morale. After the several months in battle against the Bolsheviks and reports from papers of their ultimate demise, the United States troops faced questions of how long their positions would be overrun. This is where the withdrawal begins. Crazy, and this is why people left. Oh, but, and of course, this whole thing was used by the politicians. There was this thing going on there, because apparently your Congress and Senate just can't stop fighting against each other. What I have here is that we have a Republican senator, Johnson, and he stated his resentment against the British authority over American troops to literally build his arguments against the League of Nations. The Washington Post quoted Johnson stating that, quote, American troops faced harshness from their British commanders. Moreover, Johnson titled his response for American withdrawal, quote, Let's be Americans again. Johnson stated that the administrator's response about the status of American troops in North Russia was, quote, in the hands of the Allied Council in Europe. In addition, he argued that a proxy League of Nations already existed within the Allied Council. Finally, Johnson asserted that if the United States joined the League of Nations, the United States would be drawn into conflicts like the one in Russia without the assent of American people. Quote, This Allied Council is nothing but the existing League of Nations. If the American people desire war, let it be declared. And if declared by Congress, the soldiers sent to fight would amply supported, but under the orders of foreign nations. Americans wage war without declaration by the American Congress or the consent of the American people. If you think about it right now, and I'm going back into the crazy Marsh and Dan Carlin territory once again now, how many undeclared wars have Americans fought since uh, World War II, really? How much of that has been police action? And in a way, this is, in a way, Mr. Johnson was right. Was he morally right? I don't know. Do America have a moral reason to protect democracy? Not sure. It's a huge debate, but 
This certainly is interesting that, that if you read these comments about this North Russian expedition, which is totally unknown for most people, and then you hear arguments like this used in political discourse, and, well, Mr. Johnson does have a point if you look at the modern situation in the world. Senator Johnson used this American people's anger about the Allied war effort in North Russia to govern as resistance to American membership in League of Nations. And coupled with a firestorm of anti-intervention reporting done by the media, Senator Johnson gave a focused voice for the withdrawal of the United States troops. In turn, this whole political backlash toward the president forced Wilson's administration to consider ordering immediate withdrawal, because hell, well, not like Wilson had thought this out in the first place. After a bunch of chapters where Rolf Alderson speaks about why this whole thing failed and he touches on, on all these things, he also touches the League of Nations. And he speaks uh, about this in, in his chapter 13, which is called The White Man's Burden. Quote, The relations between the English and the Russians were not on the whole pleasant or friendly. The English themselves do not know this. So long as they were not shooting each other, there was nothing missing in the estimation of this average English soldier in his relations with the Russians. Feeling at heart the pressure of the white man's burden, he had great scorn for the white Russians, who now had added to his weight. I have heard English officers curse Russian soldiers so violently that I knew they were giving themselves boldness over cover of their foreign tongue, and I knew too that the soldiers were refraining from protest under the pretense of not understanding. I once heard an English captain call three Russian captains filthy swine in their hearing, and one of the Russians afterward told me in perfectly good English that he had frequently been so abused by Englishmen, who thought he did not understand their words. This word, swine, in fact, was the favorite appellation of the English for the Russians. And that's a sentiment here that, yeah, you know, kind of reminds me that when the Soviet Union fell, when people just went to the western parts of the world because we had our genes and rock and roll now and we wanted to be free, but instead we were greeted by posters stating that you should go and steal shit at your own home, yeah. And a lot of people just presume that, you know, we're, we're some sort of backwards people here in Eastern Europe and that, I don't know. That is why I do not sympathize with alt-right and, and, and the far-right movements. Neither do I with the far-left movements. But yeah, I'm not exactly sure if those people would even consider me here in Latvia to be um, worthy enough uh, to be considered a civilized person, which is another political issue. But hey, tangents are necessary because through this lens, we can we can look at this whole situation here and maybe maybe make some decisions on our own. But quoting on. Since it's necessary in this writing to generalize about the Englishmen and British officers somewhat, I must say here that there were amongst them some splendid men. I had the privilege of knowing a few who were amongst the finest men to be met anywhere, tactful, human, sympathetic, and strong. But these were too small a minority. The expedition called for military skill and called for leadership, sympathy, social skill. There was a sad failure to realize that an expedition of this sort is bound to run into social and political problems that are quite as important, perhaps more so, than their military practice. The management of this campaign had ignored all social and political considerations that might have contributed to its success or failure, and had blundered stupidly whenever these matters have forced themselves to the front. And the military blunders have been so obvious that they have been openly acknowledged in part, and are on record presumably in the war office today, today being 1920. And here, Ralph Alderson explains the failure of all this situation here. The failure of North Russian expedition was the failure of the British to make friends of the Russian people. There was no purpose of conquest here. The purpose of his government was to be helpful to the Russian people, but the British soldier does not think in these terms. He had been the pupil in the school of imperialism for far too long to become a conscious knight-errant of the League of Nations so suddenly. The British took their imperialism to Russia with them, and Russia would not stand for it. He failed Russia, and the causes of his failure were 1. The Russian distrust and dislike of the British. 
Two, the British inability to understand the Russian mind. Three, the British lack of respect for the Russian character. Four, the British tactlessness in dealing with the Russians. Five, the stupid propaganda conducted by the British. And six, the British war wariness. Probably the last of these reasons is the one that will seem most important to those who have been hearing the noise made by the English politicians, but Ralph here believes it to be the least one. It did not prevent the sending out of that fine new army with its marvelous supplies of stores and equipment. It did not spoil those precious plans for getting to Petrograd before winter. But it was neither British labor nor the Bolsheviks that drove the British army from North Russia. It was the peasant population of North Russia that did this. With this withdrawal, he writes later on in the text, quote, on our way back to Arhanga in the very last days of August, we welcomed almost any suggestion that seemed to afford a pleasant justification for a retreat. And we talked much about the failure of Kolchak to meet his Kotlas or Vyatka and the unwisdom of risking another winter with Arhangel for a base, and such impossible lines of communication as we maintained last winter. In truth, we were quite willing to realize that what we had undertaken to do there was from a military point of view stupid and utterly impractical. We did not believe anybody would ever again attempt to invade Russia from the north. But the political stupidity of our mission and our methods were never suspected. An English officer's command continued to talk about swine. I'd like to finish off this episode with, um, with a very heavy story here, because, you know, we basically have been speaking on this show about the horrors and terrors of Stalinist regime, and even Lenin did his own reign of terror and what the Bolsheviks had done. Then again, you kind of have to understand them to a point here, if you think about how this is going on. Well, after all, terrible things were done to them as well. War is brutal. The man with the huge mustache stated, War is evil. America Dabra. And then this chapter here, this part of this chapter that I read was kind of crazy when I read it. And this is an American reporting what they did there in this Russian campaign. And he's from YMCA. And, and Ralph Alderson writes, quote, I saw a disarmed Bolshevik prisoner who was making no attempt to escape and no trouble of any kind and who was alone in charge of three armed soldiers shot down in cold blood. The official whitewash on this case was that he was trying to escape. I've heard of many other cases of the shooting of Bolshevik prisoners. At one time, this has become so common that the officer commanding troops issued and had posted up an order forbidding it and calling attention to the fact that there were many Bolshevik soldiers who wanted to come over and give themselves up but feared to do so because they had heard about our shooting prisoners and warning our men that the Bolsheviks might retaliate by shooting our men, whom they held as prisoners. I have seen at various times many prisoners brought in, but I have never yet seen one that was not robbed. The plunder belonged to the captor or the robber. We got as high as 3,000 rubles off of some of them. Their boots and belt buckles were especially prized trophies. I have known cases where the captor was generous and left the prisoner some small thing, but it was only to have some other soldier take it away from him later. We used gas shells on the Bolsheviks, but that, I understand, is no longer an atrocity. We fixed all the devil traps we could think of for them when we evacuated villages. Once we shot more than 30 prisoners in our determination to punish three murderers. And when we caught the commissar of Borok, a sergeant tells me we left his body in the street, stripped, with 16 bayonet wounds. We surprised Borok and the commissar, a civilian, did not have time to arm himself. The sergeant was quite exultant over it. He killed Bolsheviks because they were barbarians and cruel. This was the only thing his government had ever told him as to why they should be killed, and the only safe way to fight barbarians with their own methods. The spoilation of scores of Russian villages and thousands of little farms, and the utter disorganization of the life and industry of a great nation of the country with the attendant wanderings and sufferings of thousands of peasant folk who had lost everything but life, are but the natural and necessary results of military operation, and especially a weak and unsuccessful military operation such as this one was. 
One would hardly say, however, that it was necessary to close the school in order to use the schoolhouse for the storage of whiskey, nor to put an entire Russian family into the street in order to make room for one officer, nor loot his personal property and ransack churches, nor to take so much whiskey into the country that it could be hardly consumed when there was the greatest need for all kinds of merchandise. Yet all these things were done, and acts of this kind are now outstanding features of the military helpfulness we went into so reluctantly. This episode has been one of my most cynical and critical and awful, and I went there expecting to criticize the political debacles and the debates, but all I can feel is the empathy for people who fought in this utterly pointless thing that didn't achieve anything. And and this is the end of the show, really. This is the end of the episode, and uh, I hope it all made you put the thinking cap on. It wasn't easy for me to do. This whole thing was very much remembered later on. This is one of the reasons why Khrushchev was so angry at the Americans. You did come over there under the rule of the British and you did some fucking terrible things. And terrible things were done in general. That was the war. So when Mr. Reagan speaks in 1984, I don't know. I like Reagan personally because I'm no fan of the Soviet Union. But most people not knowing this stuff, that's, that's kind of scary. But I want to end here with the final thoughts of our friend Ralph Elderson, which kind of explain also kind of how I feel about this, and I'm going to give my own final comments here, but uh, ends with the following paragraphs, quote, I do not anticipate that their political development will parallel that of America. I do not see why it should, nor do I see how it can. Their national ideals cannot take form in the molds caused by Jefferson and Hamilton, and in their struggle for freedom and righteousness, it is quite conceivable that they will evolve political forms and practices adapted to modern days and conditions. Military men who characterize the Russian peasant as lazy, indolent, and indifferent do not know what they are talking about. They do not see through the peasant's whiskers. They resent too strongly the peasant's aversion to military profession. The peasant is no mollusk, as they learn who have to do with him long. He will fight a long fight for his freedom and fight in his own way, and he will win, if I may predict, and win it so gloriously that light will shine once more from the east even into the west. Standing in the key at Archangel and waving farewells to the American soldiers who filled the decks and rigging of a transport slowly moving off with the current, an educated Russian friend said to me, They are good boys. I'm glad they came and I'm glad they're going away. But now as never before, Russia knows that she can't be a second America. Now we do not want to be a second America. Russia must fight her own way for herself. He had to wipe tears from his face as he turned for a moment from the ship to say, And you'll go soon too. Yes, Ralph answered. And he responded, Well, but I shall stay here and die fighting for Russia, fighting against men who love Russia, perhaps, as much as I do. And that's the whole message of, of everything here. That's, that's the reason why this whole intervention is super important, and uh, you're getting this episode in mid-October, and it's there for a good reason. Because, again, it's the 100th anniversary of all this debacle. So, yeah, next time when you ask what was the most pointless thing the United States have ever done, well, this is certainly on the list up there. And this kind of also explains what my show is all about. It's not about stating you the fact, it's about giving you the feelings. And, and I do believe that might not be very entertaining or enjoying, but I hope I made you think a bit about how everything sometimes go very wrong and how the people who are actively with the boots on the ground and doing, doing the things that they're being told without even knowing why, how they too can sometimes transform. And when you read these personal histories from the past and then, and then you compare them to the secondary and tertiary data... Yeah, how it all makes things look very different. So here's to Ralph Anderson. I hope that now you know a bit more about the least known battle the United States have ever fought. До свидания, товарищи. And see you next time. 
Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.